You are now listening to the December 19th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Praying for the Next Generation. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. We've been tracking the life of Joram, the ninth king of Israel. Today, we will conclude with his story. We will consider how God continued to work with him, yet how he hardened his heart and refused to accept the plain truth. Today's story opens with Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, attacking Samaria and the surrounding city. The siege was complete and nothing could go in and out of the city. As time went on, people in the city of Samaria were running out of food and starving. Things got so desperate, they ate unclean animals and the record shows they even ate their own children. It was unbelievable that such a horrific thing was happening. As things were getting worse, Joram despised God even more. Instead of repenting, he put the blame on God and his prophets. When things came to a boil, he ordered his soldiers to go and arrest God's prophet, Elijah, with the intent to kill him. Joram's messenger went to Elisha and delivered Joram's message that this evil was from the Lord and there was no reason why he should wait for the Lord any longer. Joram meant that God was allowing such a disaster to happen to him, and if so, he could not possibly expect God to deliver him. Joram realized that this disaster came from God. What he didn't realize was that God also removes disasters for those who repent. Elisha then told the king's messenger the word of God. Here is what is said in 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 1. Then Elisha said, Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel, in the gate of Samaria. Elisha told the messenger that God would stop the famine. Joram reasoned that God would not help him because God brought the disaster upon him. Nonetheless, God wanted to show Joram again that God's thoughts were different from his thoughts and would deliver him from his dire predicament. When one royal officer heard what the prophet Elisha said, he thought the message was preposterous. He said sarcastically, How could fine flour and barley become so plentiful, so quickly, even if God made windows in heaven, and pour them out. He reasoned they could not leave the city and could not possibly harvest the next day, even if they had planted. His mind was limited by human reasoning. His mind did not comprehend God makes all things possible. At that, Elisha told him, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. That same afternoon, when Elisha made the prophecy, Four lepers were talking amongst each other at the gate of Samaria. 
In those days, lepers had to live outside the city to distance themselves from other citizens, lest they might infect them. The thing was, these leopards outside the city were starving as well. Because they had nothing to lose, they made a big decision on their own. They decided to surrender to the Aramean army. They thought they would die either way, but if they surrendered to the Aramean army, and if their lives were spared, they might not at least die of starvation. So these four lepers cautiously approached the camp of the Arameans. What happened next was an amazing intervention by God. As they drew near, it was not their approaching of the Arameans heard, but the sound of chariots and of horses, the kind of sound made by a great army. The Aramean army was caught by surprise, and panic came upon them. They argued among themselves that the king of Israel hired the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack them. They became frightened at the possibility of two of their greatest enemies coming together to launch an attack against them. So they fled, running for their lives, leaving everything behind the horses, donkeys, and all provisions. When the four lepers finally reached the Aramean camp, it was around sunset. Against the setting sun, they noticed that there was no one in the camp. They could not believe their eyes. There were all kinds of food, and they were hungry, so they ate. After they had their fill, they felt they needed to tell the others. They went back to the city and told the people what they saw. Of course, Joram did not believe that Aramean soldiers would simply vanish like that. He weighed the possibility of a ploy by the Aramean army to get them to open the city gate and come out, as they were hiding in ambush. Even though God had told Joram through Elisha that he would provide food for them, Joram was still doubting God. To check things out, Joram ordered his soldiers to go back behind the Aramean camp. And scout around. When the scouts went out all the way to the camp, they found lots of scattered clothes and equipment that the Arameans threw away in their haste. They found there was no one left in the camp. They reported back to Joram, and the people of Israel came out of the city and plundered the spoils. They ate the food the Arameans left behind and drank their drinks. Just as God said through the prophet Elisha, Samaria was full of food, and God's prophecy about fine flour and barley being plentiful came true. Incidentally, when the people of Israel rushed to the Aramean camp to plunder the spoil, Joram ordered one of his royal officers to guard the city gate. This royal officer was the one who sneered at God. And spoke to Elisha sarcastically the day before, saying, "How could what Elisha said be possible, even if God made windows in heaven to pour out flour and barley?" According to Second Kings chapter seven verse twenty, this royal officer was trampled by the people who rushed out at the gate and died. This was in fulfillment of what God said through Elisha that He would see how God provided food. But he would not eat of it. Ultimately, God used the Aramean army to show Joram and the Israelites 
that the Lord was alive and demonstrated his might. God let Joram and the Israelites experience how God's promise came true and let them know how God was in charge. God patiently waited for Joram and the people of Israel to turn back to him. But they refused to believe God's word and did not turn back to him. Because of that, God judged against Joram as he had spoken through Elijah and Elisha. 1 Kings chapter 19 verses 16 and 17 records God's judgment against Joram spoken through prophet Elijah. Sometime later, Joram made an alliance with Ahaziah, king of Judah, and went to war against Hazael, king of Aram. Joram became wounded by the Arameans, so he returned to Jezreel to attend to his wound, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went to Jezreel to see Joram. When one of his officers, Jehu, heard about it, he decided this was the time to strike against his master, Joram. So he rode to Jezreel to kill him. Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out on their chariots to face off against Jehu. It just so happened where they met up was at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Here is what is said in 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 22 to 24. When Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, What peace, so long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many? So Joram reigned about and fled and said to Ahaziah, There is treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between his arms. And the arrow went through his heart and he sank in his chariot. Joram was killed in Jehu's hands, just as God said through the prophet Elijah. And his body was thrown on the property of Naboth, just as God said through the prophet Elijah, when Joram's father Ahab took Naboth's vineyard by force. Joram witnessed how God's words were fulfilled and experienced God's might through his mercy and protection. God provided grace to Joram and the Israelites. God sometimes punished them by using the neighboring nations, but he waited for them to turn back to him. But Joram and the Israelites did not repent to the end and did not turn back to him and faced death in their own sin. This concludes today's episode. We will continue on with the story of kings next time. Have a blessed week.
is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is God the Holy Spirit. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. Well, when you think of Christmas, I don't know what the first ghost you think about is. Maybe it's the ghost of Christmas past from Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. But my hope is that you're thinking about the Holy Ghost. And that's exactly what we're going to be thinking about this morning. We are going to be in Luke chapter 1 that was just read, thinking about the role of the Holy Spirit in the birth of Jesus Christ. 
uh, in the birth, in the incarnation of the Son of God who took on flesh. Now, we don't believe in three gods, in one God with three modes, but we believe with the historic creed of Nicaea and Athanasius and the one true God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who have one essence and three persons. Now, maybe you struggle to understand the Holy Spirit, and it's not just a Christmas thing. Uh, I remember a, a quote by Dorothy Sayers where she was sharing the story of a new Chinese convert to Christianity who, when he first saw the dove as a symbol of the Holy Spirit, exclaimed, Honorable Father, very good. Honorable Son, very good. But Honorable Bird, I do not understand it all. And I think sometimes when I hear people talking about the Holy Spirit, just in general, it seems like there is a, a misunderstanding of the nature of the third person of the Trinity. Well, we want to understand the Holy Spirit, who some treat as the shyest member of the Trinity because he's so Christ-centered in his operations, while others treat him like he's the wild child of the Trinity, who's supposed to be against things like order. But this morning, we want to turn to the good Dr. Luke and his gospel in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 40, as we unpack the role of God the Spirit in the incarnation of God the Son. Now, Luke launches his gospel in the first four verses, telling us the purpose that he has written this gospel to others. He says he is doing it to lay out an orderly eyewitness account of the works of Jesus. Uh, you'll notice that he begins in the very next verses telling the story about an angel, Gabriel, dropping down from heaven to foretell a miraculous birth. Now, you might need an eyewitness to collaborate something like that. Otherwise, people might think that maybe you're crazy or, or maybe you're inebriated. But, but here he says, no, this is an eyewitness account. An angel dropped from heaven to tell about a miraculous birth. But catch this, it's not the birth of Jesus. The first birth we find is spoken of as John the Baptist. So Zechariah is a, a priest. He's married to Elizabeth. They are described as old and righteous. Aunt Liz is barren. Uncle Zeke is a priest. And Gabriel is coming before Zechariah, who is terrified when he visits him in the temple. Now, Gabriel said, don't be afraid. You're going to have a son filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 15. And he will walk in the Spirit in the power of Elijah. And then in verses 18 to 20, God strikes Uncle Zeke dumb until John is born because he asks Gabriel, how in the world is this possible? So catch this, Elizabeth joins the list of famous barren women from the Old Testament who have miraculous births. The miracle of John the Baptist and what's about to happen, this thing that so shocks Zechariah, it only highlights the utter uniqueness of Jesus that we're reading about this morning. In other words, this is a miracle that is a preamble to the greater miracle that is to come. Now, if you're taking notes, this is the big idea. The unique relationship the unique relationship of the Holy Spirit to Jesus signals divinity taking on flesh to bring about a new creation. And we're going to see this in a, in a few ways. Uh, first, we see a humble geography meets an exalted genealogy in verses 26 to 27. Now, verse 24, if you read there, you'll notice that it says that it's in the, the five months, it's in the fifth month of when Elizabeth had found out that she was pregnant and is holding it as a secret. 
And this event that we read about here in verse 26, you'll notice that it happens in the sixth month. And that sixth month is in relation to that fifth month that comes after that fifth month where Elizabeth has been pregnant. That's keen exegesis. Five comes after six. Now Gabriel's back at it this time, visiting a woman who is not barren, but a virgin. You see, the, there's a, an intensification in the plot here. It's not just a barren woman, it's a virgin woman. Notice, Jesus is born in Galilee and will go to Jerusalem later in Luke 2. He is born outside of the city of David, the city of God. And here again, we we see the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ combined. We've seen that throughout, this, this vision of lowliness coming together with this vision of exaltedness. And here, Nazareth was a backwater town off the beaten path. It's that city that when Nathanael heard that the Messiah had come from Nazareth, he says in John 1, 46, I'm sorry, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Is that even a thing? I mean, if I think about Nazareth, I don't associate Nazareth with great education and the best schools. I don't associate it with wealth or power or authority. That is where I would associate this place with those who are uneducated, who are not connected who aren't really aware of what's going on in the the outside world around them. It was not a city that would have been associated with things like God's favor, holiness, a great name, a throne, or power. And yet notice Mary's betrothed to a man named Joseph, who Luke highlights as of the house of David. I'm not sure that Joseph walked around thinking about how he came and hailed from the house of David. He probably would have felt a little bit more condemned and embarrassed about that relationship given where he was living these days. See, David's the Messiah. He is the great king of Israel who is empowered by the Holy Spirit to go out and fight for his people and to save them and to protect them from all of their enemies. He was a mighty, glorious king. And Joseph's pedigree matters because it means that the son that he would have would legally be of the house of David. Even if not biologically related to David, he would be legally related to David if adopted by Joseph. See, Luke makes clear that Jesus had no earthly father by biology. Just below, we'll see that Luke says that David is his father and he is the son of God. Those are the relationships that are highlighted. His relationship to David and to God. But it doesn't say that he's the son of Joseph as his father. See, Joseph would be adopted legally so that we could become adopted spiritually. And that spiritual adoption required Jesus to go from the cradle to the cross and to be raised from the dead and to give us his spirit by which we would receive the spirit of adoption. In fact, I love what Romans 8, 15 to 16 says about born-again believers and the relationship that we have to the Spirit of God. He says that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We, because of the Spirit of God and our relationship to Him in Christ, we cry out to the Father who is in heaven. He is no longer our enemy, but our dad. See, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I think this reality could be the reason that pure and undefiled religion is caring for widows and orphans. It's because if we really have come to know God, then we know what it is to truly be adopted by God. 
We were his enemies. We were hopeless. We had no future. But in God, we have received an inheritance through Christ so that we do have a future and a hope. And when the Holy Spirit confirms that we know God as Father, it will give us a heart for the fatherless. That's the reality, I believe, of the Spirit of God. That if we know God as Father, that we will have a heart for the fatherless. But second, notice this in our text this morning. Back to Luke. Jesus is the Messiah that we've been looking for in verses 28 to 33. Now, Mary's been picking out wedding dresses and trying not to be a bridezilla when all of a sudden Gabriel comes and interrupts her wedding plans with a declaration of grace. Now, just catch me. Sometimes when you are asking for the grace of the Lord, you are thinking that it is going to come and just fit really nicely into your life and what God's doing. It's going to be super comfortable. But what we find in the the Bible often is when the grace of the Lord shows up, it shakes things up. It comes in ways that you don't anticipate. And a lot of times when the grace of the Lord comes down, it makes you super uncomfortable. Mary's life, It got more awkward after Jesus showed up. Notice what happens. Verse 28 says here, And he came to her, being Gabriel, an angel, and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. O favored one, this is a message of grace. And she's like, This is wigging me out. I'm not comfortable with this grace. Verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. For now... Notice that God sent the angel Gabriel, same angel that visited Daniel, and gave him a vision in in 8.17, Daniel 8.17, for the end of time. You remember he gave David, I mean Daniel, this eschatological vision of what was coming at the end of days. And that same angel that visited Daniel now is back for Mary, hundreds of years later. And notice what Gabriel has to say this time to Mary. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now that word for favor, it's interesting, same word for grace. And I'm gathering that Gabriel, uh, from this story, did not look as gentle as uh, maybe some of those, I don't know, have you ever seen those precious moments angels with like the, I think it's the the precious moments, it makes little chubby angels with the bellies that poke out that look like kids, you know what I'm talking about? These like really non-intimidating little creatures. Um, they were real popular in the 90s. This angel, why would I say that he's probably not like one of those? Well, because Daniel, Zechariah, and now Mary are all terrified by the sight of him. I mean, it, it reminds me of kind of like a large monster almost coming and saying, it's okay, I'm a good guy, I won't eat you. And yet here, This message that he brings is one of grace. And Gabriel has to tell Mary, don't be afraid. Everybody's always afraid when I show up. Don't be afraid. But what does it mean that she's favored? You know, some people have taken this in different ways. Had any experience in the Catholic church as some of you have had? They believe that this favor was because there was really just something about Mary, right? 
that set her apart from other women. In fact, I was surprised many years ago whenever I saw a church that was called the Church of the Immaculate Conception. And then somebody had to explain to me, oh, like Immaculate Conception, it's not talking about Jesus, it's talking about Mary. They believe Mary was born of a virgin so that she could be prepared to give birth to Jesus. So to them, favored because she was one of God's favorites because of her uniqueness and her virtues. But catch this, Mary has no resume in this text. We're not led off with this great resume of the reason that God chose her. She simply received God's grace because God is good. Now maybe there's another reason she's troubled. She can't think of a good reason to get an audience with God. Why would God show up to me? And in verses 31 to 32, I think it actually explains why she is favored. In fact, in the, the word commentary, John Nolan explains that favor doesn't mean that, God, that Mary was God's favorite or special in and of herself. Favor speaks of the magnanimous bestowal of favor from one who is greater to one who is lesser. It is an undeserved gift that is coming to this favored one. It's more like when someone does you a favor, not by virtue of who you are, but by virtue of who they are. See, the favor will be shown in her giving birth to the son God promised David in 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7, God promised David a great son. And here we find, I believe, that Luke is highlighting that, Mary, you are going to see the fulfillment of the son that was promised hundreds of years ago to David. See, that name, Jesus, comes from the Hebrew name Joshua. The name my mom gave me. It means Yahweh saves. John the Baptist prepared people for the Lord. But Jesus' name is the Lord saves. That's his identity. Now, 2 Samuel 7, 9 promised a son to David with a name that he too would be great. Now Luke one thirty two also says that he would have the throne of David. He would be the son of the Most High. He would reign over the house. And this would be for eternity. See, 2 Samuel 7 uses all of these same descriptions that Luke does of a coming descendant of David, predicting that he would have David's throne in verse 13. That he would be son of the most high in verse 14 and reign over their house forever in verse 16. See, Luke wants us to understand that Gabriel says this Messiah that was promised in 2 Samuel 7 has arrived in Luke 1. Now don't miss this. Jesus, if you're reading your Bibles, this is why he matters. He fulfills the promise made to Eve of a seed who would undo the curse that was brought by the serpent in the Garden of Eden through a greater seed who had crushed the head of the serpent. He is that seed. Jesus fulfills the promise that God made to Abraham of a kingly seed who would be a king that would bless the nations. Jesus fulfills the promise that God made to David of a son who would come after him, but who would be greater than him. He would be the Messiah who would truly fight for God's people by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, God's people living under the oppressive rule of Rome might have forgotten God's promises. Joseph, living in a backwater village of Nazareth, in Galilee territory, surrounded by people who did not believe in God and Yahweh, would have needed to be reminded that God has not forgotten his promises. He may have forgotten God, but God has not forgotten him. See, God always keeps his promises. God never writes checks with his mouth that his mighty hand does not cash. But catch this, this son of God would have a unique relationship to the Holy Spirit 
unlike anyone coming before or after him in verses 34 to 40. What Luke wants us to understand is he is greater in his very person than anyone that has preceded him. This would have been strange. It was understood in the ancient Near East that fathers were greater than sons. Jesus was greater than David because he's fully human, but he's not just fully human. He's not merely human by virtue of a special work of the Holy Spirit. He's fully human, but not merely human. The Holy Spirit is doing a unique work in him. Notice third, the Holy Spirit signals God's unique presence and a new creation in verses 34 to 40. Here we see some of the uniqueness of Christ and his relationship to the Holy Spirit. Now, you'll remember that Luke introduced Mary, repeating that she was a virgin twice. Now, repetition, I always tell you, it draws attention. So with virgin, it's trying to to acknowledge twice, like, hey, a virgin. She has not had any relationships with a man. Mary's virginity creates a significant problem to Mary giving birth to the Christ. How is she going to do it if she hasn't had relations with a man? That's why perplexed, she asked in verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? That's the modern equivalent of, Gabriel, you do know where babies come from, right? And Gabriel responds in verses 35 to 37, explaining it this way. There he says, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. We're talking about the triune God's role in the incarnation. And here we see, notice, the Father, Most High, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're all involved in the birth of Christ. Of course, again, we don't believe in three gods, but one God with three persons. So there really is a sense in which one acts, they all act, all three persons. But what are we to make of the Holy Spirit's role here in the Son of God taking on flesh? It's tempting to see new creation here because of how much it sounds like the the Spirit's activity in Genesis 1-2. You remember whenever in the beginning of creation, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the, the waters? That word's not the exact word used there, though the idea might be meant to be included in what Luke presents here. In fact, in Luke 1, you almost get the sense that the Holy Spirit is hovering over the womb of Mary as the new creation is about to break out. And this might be right, but we need to pay special attention to the language here to make sure we understand what Luke meant. So I want to focus on the words for to come upon and overshadow here. I believe these words used in verse 35 help us understand what's going on in the picture that Luke wants to draw. First, the Holy Spirit is said will come upon you to Mary. Now, to come upon is only used with the Holy Spirit here and in Acts 1.8 and then in Isaiah 32.15. Only places we find those ideas connected, those words. Now, you'll remember that Luke also wrote Acts 1.8. So two of the the ways that Luke uses it are actually together from the same writer at two different points in redemptive history. And the other is coming from Isaiah 32, 15. Now, commentator John Nolan, looking at this, draws this conclusion. Since Luke nowhere else refers to the coming of the Spirit in these terms, 
he is probably drawing attention to the Greek text of Isaiah 32:15 in both cases. This is the eschatological coming of the Spirit that will cause the wilderness to become a fruitful field. In other words, the Spirit coming upon Mary to give her a child does signal a new creation breaking out, just as Isaiah declared. See, fruit is coming from the barren wilderness when the Spirit comes upon Mary, creating the God-man Jesus. We also, of course, see Elizabeth, the barren woman, giving birth. Life is springing forth at the arrival of this son. Now, overshadowed is important as well. This language for overshadowed is rare. It's used in all three transfiguration accounts where Jesus' glory is revealed to Peter and the others. Now, the same word for overshadow that's used here to describe the Spirit coming over Mary is also used in the Greek version of Exodus 40.35. And there it says, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud of God's presence overshadowed it. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. There's a kind of unprecedented display of the glory of God so much that Moses can't draw near. You see it? And here we have an escalation in the birth of Jesus where the greater glory is coming to humanity. See, that overshadowing represented the presence of God. And wherever that cloud went, the people of God followed. Here Luke says this baby is where God's people meet with God. The locus of worship was a place, the temple in Jerusalem. And here the new locus of worship is a person, Jesus. See, God's presence is uniquely with him. God's glory is uniquely with this son. Now some religions speak of God's having babies with wisdom, with women. But there is not a hint of any kind of sex in either coming upon or overshadowing. It is clear this is a miraculous activity of God. This baby would truly be born of the Holy Spirit's miraculous initiative. There's a sense in which God formed Jeremiah in the womb. If you go to Jeremiah 1.5, it says that. And there's a sense in which he too was consecrated for prophetic ministry before he was born. That's what Jeremiah 1.5 says. God had initiative in his life to be used But Jesus here is utterly unique in his relationship to the Holy Spirit and how he formed and consecrated Jesus from the womb. He was formed in a way that Jeremiah was not. Jeremiah had a daddy on earth. Jesus did not. See, the Holy Spirit formed Jesus in the womb of Mary without any biological father. He consecrated the Jesus who entered the cradle for the purpose of going to the cross to save us from God's just wrath. And he did this for a sinful humanity. See, the first Adam was created from the dust of the earth and led humanity into sin. But the last Adam, Jesus, truly came from heaven by means of the Holy Spirit, creating the God-man who was both fully God and fully man. Don't miss this. The miraculous births of Isaac, Samson, Obed, Samuel, and John the Baptist were only the prelude to the deity taking on human flesh. It was God warming up, the Holy Spirit preparing us for the greater event of Christ coming and taking on flesh. So don't miss the unique greatness of Jesus. All that God is, he is. In the word of God, his book that he wrote through men carried along by his power, he wrote a story that highlights, it climaxes and culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
That's what the Holy Spirit writes about. He writes about Jesus. Holy Spirit loves this son. Spirit led many people to write a book focused on him. So Jesus might be called the brother of believers in Hebrews. I think it's good to understand the fact that he was fully human. Absolutely true. But we must never forget that though he was fully human like us, he is also fully God and other than us. See, Jesus came from the Spirit, and he also sent the Spirit. And none of us send the Spirit like Jesus sends the Spirit. None of us are like Jesus in that way. Jesus does that. None of us were born of the Holy Spirit like Jesus was without a physical father. But notice one last phrase that could be seriously misunderstood in verse 37. Gabriel explains, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now that's a place that a lot of churches want to crank up the eye of a tiger in the background, right? Say, okay guys, nothing is impossible with God. I want you to get your pens out. I want you to start talking about all the dreams, the big dreams that you can sacrifice to God because he needs to help you think this out. That was sarcastic. But nothing will be impossible for God, right? And you're off writing your Christmas list for God. In fact, this is the kind of like what's going on at Bethel right now. Your precious two-year-old girl named Olive died this last week and the churches have been gathering and worshiping and clapping and singing praises, crying out, come alive, come alive, asking for a resurrection of this little girl. And my heart goes out to these parents. But should we ask for the resurrection of the dead especially if nothing will be impossible for God? I mean, I think that's a good question. We have people that we love that die. Should we be praying and and asking for God to raise them from the dead? You know, it's interesting that church history, we don't have orthodox groups that are doing this, and you might ask why. But I, for one, serve a God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, just like Paul says in Ephesians 4. I believe in that God. But we need to know the character of the incomprehensible God. If we really begin to wrap our minds around who God is, the fact that he is far beyond our knowing, his ways are unsearchable unless he comes down and shows us, then it means that we need to think carefully about what God has said, about how we ought to think about the nature of what we should expect from him. God always keeps his promises. But what are his promises? That's the question. See, we need to know what God has said. Jesus says he'll give us whatever he asks in John 14, 14. But we kind of need to put that in context. Do you remember what he says to Peter in John 13, whenever Peter asked Jesus something? He says, I want to follow you. And what does Jesus say? You cannot follow me. And then John 14, I will give you whatever you ask, but I just asked to follow you. (laughs) You see it? Context matters. And later he gives him the Holy Spirit and he's allowed to follow him. See, only after Jesus' death and resurrection and only after he breathes the Spirit on Peter in John 20, 22, does John say, you can follow me. And James, what about James and what he says about what we ought to ask of God? He says, you have not because you ask not. You're like, that's what Jesus said. I need to go and ask. But if you keep reading, he also says, and when you ask, oh, I'm asking? You ask wrongly. In what way? Well, you're asking after your sinful passions. 
You're not asking according to God's will, but you're asking against your own selfish desires. You're not seeking the face of God. You're not seeking to hear from him. You're seeking to tell him what you want rather than speaking back the words of God that have been spoken to you to him in prayer. See, if we want to apply nothing is impossible with God to our daily lives, we need to put that verse in context, right? So I don't think that when God says that, he's saying that, we should pray for all things and ask all things of him and anything's on the, on the table. Like, for instance, God, I, I think my wife has found out that I'm cheating on her. Would you please help me cover this up? Because nothing's impossible with God. Well, no, wait a minute. <laughs> That's not good logic because we know that God hates adultery, right? And it's contrary to God's will. So there are at least some things that we should not be asking of God. Well, here Zechariah was struck dumb Why? In context of Luke, where he says nothing is impossible with God, Zechariah struck dumb. Why? Because he did not believe that God could give his old barren wife a baby. And here's the irony of that. He's a priest. Hasn't he read his Bible? God's done this stuff in the past. And then Mary has just asked, how will I give birth to Jesus if I'm a a virgin? Did you tell God that part? And Gabe's answer is something we've never seen. The Holy Spirit will do it. How do you have a category for that? Can I really trust that God can do this thing that we've never seen done before? You remember when God told 90-year-old Sarah, who was barren, that she would have a child. She laughed at God. And she said, shall I and bear a child? To which God replied, what? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything that the Lord says that he can do, that he will do, that he has promised that he will do, that he cannot bring to fulfillment? anything. And here Gabe says, for nothing is impossible with God to drive Mary to trust God's word that he just gave her. So he's not saying, now go out and make a Christmas list for God with all your selfish desires. Now, back to thinking about, should we pray for resurrections? I don't think it's bad at all to want the dead to be raised. I think we'd all love to raise some people up from the dead. In fact, that's one of the hopes of the gospel is that one day, not if they will be raised, but that they will be raised. But the reason that Orthodox Christians haven't prayed for resurrection isn't because we don't believe that God is able. Orthodox Christians believe God is able. He's able. The reason is that we look to God who revealed himself in the Bible as to how we pray to him and what we expect of him and what the promises are that have been given to us. And our prayers ought to sound like God's voice. Do you get that? How do we know how to pray? God told us. How do we know who we're praying to? God told us. How do we know the kinds of things that we ought to pray for? God told us. And so when we are speaking back to God, we are speaking with words and language that has been given to us from heaven. So when we pray, we should be praying God's words back to him. Of course, tied to the context of our real lives. And the Bible consistently ties the resurrection to a promise that is on what? The last day. So we've got that promise. They will be raised on that last day when Jesus comes back. Catch this. The first advent is pointing us towards the second advent when Jesus comes back. We need Jesus to come back. Death screams that. Do you hear it? So what is the prayer in the face of death? Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come right? And we will be faithful until that day. Help us be faithful. 
In other words, the question isn't if we will be raised, but when. So if we want the dead raised, the better prayer is, Lord, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And help me be faithful until that day when he shows up so that I'll have no reason to be ashamed on account of the gospel, the good news that you have given to us and the son who came and took on flesh. See, that's when the dead are raised. So when we pray, this is how we ought to be thinking about praying. First, we need to understand that prayer is contingent on the fact that we too have the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that caused Jesus to be born in the Virgin Mary. That same Spirit that was that came upon her. We were told in Acts 1.8 is the Spirit that comes upon those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And it is from that Spirit that we actually receive adoption such that we have a right through Christ, the great Son, to pray to the Father in a way that He will hear us. We are not heard if not for Christ before the Holy God. We are not heard if we are not His children. We are only His children by means of the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So one is we we need the Holy Spirit to come upon us. Two is we know from John 3.16 that that Holy Spirit comes upon us who believe in Jesus Christ. It is by faith that we are given the gift to be able to be saved from our sins and be born again, as John 3 says. The Holy Spirit calls us to be born again so that we can speak to God, so that we want to speak to God, and so that we have language to speak to God. But not only that, we know that it's only in the Holy Spirit that we can even confess who Jesus is as we come before the Father. And so when we, we have those things, when we are born-again believers, and if you're not a born-again believer, one great reason to put your faith in Christ, not to be just saved from your sins, that is enough, but also to have an audience with God as your Father, not as your enemy. But there's something else that we see here, and, and there's some realities that we need to hold in our hearts as we come before God and we, we pray to Him. One is, we need to trust We need to trust that we have a good God, that as we are praying, and we don't know what to ask, that the Holy Spirit is interceding for our groans, that we do not know how to pray to God in the way that we ought to. That's what Romans 8 and Galatians 4, 6 says. The Holy Spirit helps translate our prayers into something better than what they are, coming from finite creatures to an infinite God. That's one. Two, we trust in God's absolute ability and sovereignty as we pray. We trust with Ephesians 4 that God is able to do far more abundantly than we can think or imagine. We we take that confidence as we go to the the, the Lord in prayer. Third, we trust that God, that no good thing comes that isn't from God, James 1, 16 to 18. That's our confidence. We know that God is altogether wise in Psalm 104. He is wise beyond us. Now here's why those four realities are so important to us. that, That God is good, that he is sovereign, and that he is wise. It's because when we go to the Lord, we can pray and we can ask for things like a husband or a better job or the salvation of a a child that we love. We can go to him in that. But when we don't get the answers that we want, we are always trusting God that he is sovereign. That this isn't not happening because God is out of control. God's sovereign. We don't think that it didn't happen because God's not good or that he's holding back good from us, that he doesn't want us to have too much of an experience of good. That's not what God's doing when we pray. We don't believe that when we pray and ask great things of God, that, he, that our wisdom is above his wisdom, such that we're like, hey God, you know, I've got this great idea that you haven't had yet, and I think if you went and like worked out all the possibility calculations, that you would see my way is a better way. Anybody ever done that? 
Anybody have to confess and say, God, you're wiser than I am? I know for a moment I started to think of myself as being like omniscient and omnipotent, all those things, and I know I'm not, I'm finite, I'm sinful, I'm fallen, I'm broken, and thanks for loving me with such mercy, right? Help me to trust that you are wise, that you are powerful, and that you are good, because I'm starting to doubt those things, because I'm trusting my eyes more than I'm trusting the God that I cannot see. You see it? We need to trust those things when we go to the Lord in prayer. so sweet and clear when heaven's light and music fell and mercy found us here glory in the highest and on the earth be peace glory to God the angels sing and his grace to show the brightness of his smile the glory of his face so glory in the highest and on the earth be peace glory to God your children sing his name shall be called wonderful
mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace for all eternity. You are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour of our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to aid in the spiritual maturity of our listeners. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through internet broadcasting or through our CD delivery program. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. All you have to do is search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to listen to or download this week or past week's programs. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Following is the program Transforming Grace. I'm Leslie Martin, author of the book, Transforming Grace. I have served with my church, Calvary Phoenix, for over 38 years, and it has been my privilege to teach God's Word with many people in our community through our women's ministries. I'm so blessed to share this simple book with you about God's love and grace for all of His people. I hope you will enjoy this time together as I read Transforming Grace. The Bible declares that the person who believes in Jesus is not under the condemnation of law. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. The Bible assures us that we are not saved by what we do or don't do. Salvation is a gift of God's grace and it isn't earned. God freely lavishes His grace on anyone who will accept His Son, Jesus. This is the foundation for how to be saved by grace. However, Christians may struggle with living in grace because the tendency of everyone is to think that God's approval is based on our performance. Living under law rather than experiencing a life lived in grace is so pervasive It is in our nature to feel condemned for not achieving certain standards. Let's examine what it means to be under the law. In the Old Testament, the law was all about the commandments that God gave to the Jewish people. It included the Ten Commandments, but actually it was comprised of 613 commandments. Try posting those on your wall and keeping them every day. 
Do you think you could even remember them? <laughs> Actually, no one succeeded at this, and everyone was guilty of breaking at least some of God's 613 commandments. That's why the Apostle Peter later said, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And that's in Acts chapter 15, verse 10. No one could keep the law. Fortunately, we are no longer under obligation to obey the old covenant laws. For example, we don't have to avoid pork. We don't have to worry about keeping a certain day for worship, hand-washing rituals, and all of the various things associated with keeping kosher. Although we no longer deal with the law in that sense, there are still a lot of us, if not most of us, that live under some kind of law that we have placed on ourselves. Wanting to do what is good and right is not living under the law. We desire to do what is right because we are saved. We're new creations in Christ. What we once loved, we now hate. And what we once hated, we now love. There is a new person inside of us that loves God and wants to live for God. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's not living under the law. What, then, does it mean to live under law? Living under law is characterized by a performance-based life. It's all about what I do and what I don't do. It includes not just my actions, but also what I say and what I don't say. It's not just the bad stuff I do, but also the good stuff that I neglect to do. I can beat myself up with this type of standard, can't I? I know, I'm not the only one who has struggled with living under law. Many people have the perception that what they do or don't do will somehow make God smile at them a little more. But our performance has absolutely nothing to do with how God views us. Even on our worst of days, God is delighted with us. On our best of days, he's not more delighted in us. His heart towards us never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, according to Hebrews 13, verse 8. We can never disappoint him. How could we disappoint someone who has foreknowledge? He already knows everything about us. After God saved us, and we've sinned even after that point, God wasn't surprised by anything we did or said. God never said, Oh, I can't believe I saved her. Or, I didn't know he was going to do such a thing. Can we somehow get his name out of the book of life? God knows the way we think, and when he has refined us, we will come forth as gold. We're not gold right now. We're like ore that's in the process of being ground and refined and all the impurities taken out. We're not beautiful yet, but we will be someday. This is how we feel if we are living under the law. We feel discouraged and depressed when we fail. When we don't feel like going to church because we've been so selfish and ugly to our spouse, that's living under the law. When we can't look someone in the eye, smile, and say, God loves you and so do I because we've been so grumpy, that's living under the law. Some other signs that indicate we may be living under the law include, first of all, feeling a nagging sense of competition or comparison with other people. If we look to compare ourselves with Susie Christian, who we perceive to be better than we are, then guess what? 
we will always find a Susie Christian who is better than we are. Nevertheless, God is delighted in both us and Susie. He loves all of us equally. Another sign that indicates we may be living under the law is feeling judgmental of ourselves or of other people, or feelings of condemnation, or showing or feeling disapproval of our own actions or those of others, feeling as though we're not good enough, or believing that we are a failure. Any of these thoughts and feelings may be symptoms of living as if we're under the law. At this point, we need to address the question, is there ever a time when a person should be under the law? There are at least a couple of situations in which it is valid to feel convicted and condemned as under the law. First of all, if you're not a Christian, you are under the condemnation of the law. Secondly, if you are a Christian, but you have chosen to live in a sinful lifestyle, or if you've chosen to hang on to sin, then you're under the conviction of the teachings and commands of the Bible. There is a proper use of the law, and there are good reasons to feel convicted or condemned. If you are not a Christian, God uses the law. But how does a secular person know what is right from wrong? Well, we live in a society that values and promotes an independent and self-determined way of life. Many people live as if there are no real absolutes. Only a generation or two ago, most people believed in moral absolutes. For example, it was commonly believed that marriage was a lifetime commitment between one man and one woman and that sex outside of marriage was wrong. Today, our families are disintegrating through divorce. We know that the family is being redefined in many ways, such as single-parent families, parents that aren't married but living together, and other variations on the traditional family. Proponents of same-sex marriage has been legalized. The battle for traditional morality is fierce. We can't look to the culture for moral guidance, so our Creator has given every one of us an inner warning system that sounds an alarm when we do wrong. It's called our conscience. Some people, however, have ignored their conscience to the point that they don't hear its alarm. God has also given us moral absolutes that are found in the Bible. God's Word declares that there are definitely things that are wrong. It's wrong to murder. It's wrong to steal. It's wrong to cheat. It's wrong to lie. It's wrong to gossip. It's wrong to have sex outside of marriage between one man and one woman. The Scripture tells us that all of these things and more are morally wrong. If you're not a Christian and you are feeling bad about doing some of those things, that's good. You should feel guilty. The right purpose of the law is to point out our moral failures and turn us to God so that we can confess, God, my life is a mess. I need you. And you know what? God delights in forgiving and accepting anyone who will admit their moral failures. That's called sin. He happily sweeps you up in his arms and accepts you as his child. Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. If you have never acknowledged that there is a God and that you have done things that are morally wrong, take this moment to turn away from your sinful, self-determined life and turn to God. You can pray a simple prayer in your heart to God right now. You can pray with me and accept this gift of love 
that God wants to give you. He wants to accept you as his very own child and totally transform your life to give you the hope of eternal life with him after you die. If this is what you want, pray with me right now. Dear God, I thank you that you are a God of love and grace. You have rules and standards, and they are good. I haven't acknowledged you, and I have been living my life my own way. I've done things that are wrong. My life is not right as far as what you say. Please forgive me. I want to be your child and receive the gift of hope and life forever with you. I ask you to accept me and to look at me with delight as your child. I accept the gift you are giving to me of being a part of your family and of having all my sin forgiven by what Jesus did in dying on the cross and shedding his blood for me. Thank you. I accept your gift, and I thank you for accepting me. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to God's family. The good news is you are no longer under the condemnation of the law. Jesus has forgiven you, and God looks at you with delight. You are not under the law. I hope you enjoyed this portion of God's Transforming Grace. We'll see you next time. God bless.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.